Hi, everybody. I'm Maurice Merrick, and this is Horsepower Heritage. Greetings to all of you listening from faraway places like New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, New Smyrna Beach, Florida, Austin, Texas, Swindon, England, Antwerp, Belgium, and Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Thanks for joining me, and don't forget to follow the podcast and help me spread the word. Share the show with your friends because I'm just getting started, and there's a lot more great stuff to come. Today I'm going to tell you about a legendary Formula One driver who stood up for what he knew was right, even in the face of sharp criticism and even death threats. Today it's hard to believe his efforts were controversial, but I'll tell you all about it coming up next. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. They sell collector-grade scale model cars. And when you shop online, just use the code HERITAGE at checkout and you'll get 10% off your order. That's a special deal for my listeners. My pick this week is the Aston Martin Vulcan in 118th scale by AutoArt. The detail and quality here is really impressive, and Aston Martin only built 24 Vulcans, so you're unlikely to ever see one in person, but the scale version can be yours. You can see this and other great models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the ginormous 18th scale at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Use the promo code HERITAGE, get 10% off, done. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. There's no joy in talking about the death involved in motor racing. And some people may not even want to think about this topic. But if you love motor racing, by the time this story is over, I think you're going to appreciate how far we've come and what it took to get here. There's a lot of reasons we celebrate racing drivers. For their intense focus, or their skill, or competitive spirit. But in large part, it's for their sheer courage. It takes guts to go wheel-to-wheel at triple-digit speeds for hundreds of miles. Racing is inherently dangerous at all levels of the sport. For decades, driver fatalities were simply accepted as part of the game, and safety measures in racing were more or less an afterthought. The horrific 1955 crash at Le Mans that killed 83 people in the grandstand and injured over 100 others began to force improvements. But they were mainly changes in track design and the addition of some crash barrier. There were no really meaningful considerations for the safety of drivers. Even though the International Automobile Federation, or the FIA, was certainly aware of the shortcomings and was ever so slowly beginning to come to terms with the problem. The FIA is the governing body for many motorsport events around the world, most prominently for Formula One, or Grand Prix racing. But from the 1950s onward, as speed and performance made big leaps, the driver death toll continued to climb, especially in Formula One. And there was a morbid air cast over racing. Bureaucracy and expense slowed the pace of reform. Drivers, government officials, and the press increasingly wondered how much carnage the public would continue to accept. So it was with this backdrop that, in the late 1960s, driver safety became a hot topic. And the man who pushed more forcefully than anyone else was the Flying Scot, Jackie Stewart. June 12, 1966. Spa-Frankerchamps circuit. The starting grid is revving its engines waiting for the green flag to drop at the Belgian Grand Prix. And they're off. 16 cars, 150 miles per hour. 
But a rain squall has moved in over portions of the circuit, and sheets of heavy rain are falling, and water is pooling on the track. Jackie Stewart hydroplanes on the first lap, leaves the track and crashes through the barriers, then careens through a shed and into the weeds near a farmhouse. Stewart is pinned in his BRM upside down for nearly half an hour, soaked with fuel, before two other drivers who've crashed nearby, teammate Graham Hill and Bob Bondurant, manage to free him using tools they've scavenged from a spectator. Once he's freed from the wreckage, he's put in the back of a truck. He waits in a makeshift first aid station, where the floor is littered with trash and cigarette butts. And there are no doctors at the circuit to attend to him. Eventually, an ambulance arrives to transport Stewart, but it gets lost while driving him to the hospital. And this is the state of things at the pinnacle of auto racing in 1966. Jackie Stewart was born in Scotland in 1939. His father was a successful car dealer, and the family connection to the car business led him into amateur racing in 1961 behind the wheel of a Marcos and then an E-Type Jaguar. Stewart seemed to be unnatural, and he had a placid focus behind the wheel, something he later attributed indirectly to his dyslexia. You see, he'd been shamed as a schoolboy for appearing dumb, even by his teachers, and he tried to escape ridicule in any way he could. He took up clay pigeon shooting and found out he was actually pretty good at it. So good that he was soon winning competitions, which led to a place in the Scottish shooting team. The individual effort required for shooting gave Stewart a calm self-confidence that later translated onto the racetrack. In 1963, Jackie was hired by the Le Mans-winning Scottish privateer team Ecurie Ecosse, which, by the way, means Scottish stable in French. The team raced in a very distinctive metallic blue livery, and the team logo was St. Andrew's Cross in the center of a shield. Anyway, he won eight races with Ikuri Ikos. He set lap records, and in 1964, he was asked by retired driver-turned-team manager Ken Tyrrell to test a new Formula 3 car. Stewart turned faster lap times than the other test driver, Bruce McLaren, who was already a Grand Prix star. That showing led to a deal with Terrell to drive Formula 3, then Formula 2, and in 1965, Stewart signed with the BRM Formula 1 team, alongside Graham Hill. And that September, Stewart scored his first F1 victory at the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, competing against the likes of Jim Clark, Joe Siffert, Richie Ginther, Dan Gurney, and Bruce McLaren. And he beat his BRM teammate, Graham Hill, by three seconds. The next season was a struggle. The BRMs had engine problems. Stewart did win at the opener in Monaco in May, and then three weeks later came his crash in the rain at Spa, as I told you. Jackie began to think very seriously of doing something about the glaring lack of safety measures in Formula One, and he became vocal about it. His resolve was galvanized by two fateful events. On April 7, 1968, in a Formula 2 race at Hockenheim during the F1 offseason, the great Jim Clark lost control of his Lotus at 140 miles per hour, and it crashed into a wooded area alongside the track, killing him instantly. Clark's death was a catastrophic blow to Grand Prix racing. He was a two-time world champion, a fan favorite, and universally admired and respected by his fellow drivers. 
Clark was a virtuoso, and it was hard to believe that he'd made a mistake at that spot on the track. There were several causes considered. A mechanical failure, a blown tire, driver error. But whatever the cause, the obvious fact was that no one was there to witness the crash, report it, and get help on the way. In Jim Clark's case, it wouldn't have mattered, but the lack of safety support was nevertheless a shameful reality. Then, in 1970, during a practice run for the Italian Grand Prix, German driver Jochen Rintz Lotus had an axle half shaft break apart as he went into a corner under hard braking. His car had inboard brakes, and the stress of braking pressure sheared bolts in the front right drive shaft, causing sudden loss of control. Rintz Lotus left the track and slammed into the Armco barrier. On impact, he slid forward in the cockpit, and his throat was cut by his seatbelt harness. He bled to death in minutes. The deaths of Jim Clark and Jochen Rint weighed heavily on Jackie Stewart. They had been close friends, both on and off the track. Jim and Jackie were fellow Scots, roommates, and best friends. Jochen and Jackie spent sunny holidays together with their young families. So, of course, it was personal. Jackie was feeling the painful emptiness of this loss. And yet, by any objective measure, he was right about the lack of safety. In his words, Jim Clark's death woke everyone up. He would become a fervent and outspoken advocate for driver safety. His motto became, I'm here to display my skill, not my bravery. But let's step back for a moment and take a look at the state of driver safety in 1968, according to official FIA specifications of the time. Seatbelts were required, but their proper use was not mandated. And in the days of the Le Mans start, when drivers had to muster on a line across the track from their cars and then run to them at the shot of a starter pistol, many drivers didn't bother to buckle their belts. They just started the car and roared off, hoping to save a few seconds. And there was a commonly held belief that if calamity arose, they would rather be thrown from the wreckage or jump clear. But this idea was ill-informed, and it was probably based on fringe cases of such incidents in the past. Sometimes they did get lucky, but it was far more likely that being thrown from the car would result in impact with a solid stationary object, or the car rolling over you. And jumping away from the car really is meaningless because you're still traveling in the same direction. You may separate from the car to a degree, but you're still going to impact something, whether it's the pavement, a fixed object, or the car itself. British driver John Wolfe was killed in exactly this way at the 1969 Le Mans 24 Hours because he hadn't secured his harness and he was thrown from his Porsche 917. And that was on the first lap of the race. And at Le Mans in 1955, Pierre Levey was thrown from his Mercedes, but he died instantly when his head smashed into the pavement. It was a matter of simple physics. However, from the driver's point of view, the car's construction made it inherently a death trap. It would be many years before car design was reconceptualized in such a way that it would be a cocoon for the driver, and that would make it the safest place to be, and make it unlikely that you would want to leave the cockpit in the event of a crash. Hard shell helmets were required since the early 50s, but they were not full face, and their construction was of minimal use in an impact event. In considering helmet design, the FIA balanced the weight of a helmet against its effectiveness. In other words, a thicker, stronger helmet with greater coverage would offer better protection against impact, but its greater weight would also increase the risk of spinal whiplash injury. 
And after all, if motorcycle racers and jet pilots weren't wearing full-face helmets, why should race car drivers wear them? Let's talk about fuel tanks. They were required to be isolated from the cockpit by means of bulkheads, but there was no requirement for internal baffling and they would routinely rupture on impact. Many drivers suffered critical or fatal burns when their fuel tanks ruptured. And there were no impact absorption zones in the cars. That wasn't even a thing. The cars were still a thin aluminum or fiberglass skin over a tube frame. The cockpits in a monoposto or single-seat car were extremely narrow and difficult to escape in an emergency, and the driver's shoulders and upper chest were unprotected. Now, to be fair, very little consideration had been given to impact safety in any motor vehicle up to this point in history. There are a few exceptions like Mercedes-Benz crash testing beginning in the 1950s. And in fact, the call for increased safety in motorsport sort of paralleled similar outcry in the motor industry at large. For example, after years of exhaustive study and data collection, in 1966, the United States Congress passed the National Highway Traffic Safety Act, a sweeping piece of legislation that resulted in everything from the redesign of guardrails to airbag systems to the creation of the modern emergency medical services. And that trend gradually spread to other nations. Ironically, where motor racing usually leads the way in technological development, in this area, it was slow to react. Meanwhile, Jackie Stewart was speaking publicly about the need for safety reforms. First, he called for better crash barrier devices and driver boycotts at tracks that refused to address the issue. And the Grand Prix Drivers Association backed him up. Stewart was just the right man to be the public face of safety reform. He'd already proven himself behind the wheel. In 1968, Ken Tyrrell, who'd given him his first break in Formula 3, organized a Formula 1 team, running an Anglo-French mashup, the Matra Ford, and he recruited Jackie to drive. That year, he won the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring in heavy rain, near zero visibility, and with a broken wrist. No one could credibly call Jackie Stewart's courage into question. In 1969, he became Formula One world champion. And by the way, the glory and the glamour and the fame was intoxicating. Jackie Stewart was the first Formula One driver to earn a million dollars. But in speaking out about safety, Stewart quickly became an object of scorn in some circles. Some of the older generation of drivers scoffed. Death was occasionally the price you paid for glory, stiff upper lip and all that. Racing fans ridiculed his efforts on the grounds that the sport would be watered down with too many safety rules and therefore less exciting. And he got death threats after boycotts of the Nürburgring in 1970. Veteran journalist Dennis Jenkinson, who'd been a co-driver for Sterling Moss on their victorious 1955 Millimilia run in the Mercedes 300 SLR, and who knew a thing or two about racing, savaged Jackie Stewart in the pages of Motorsport magazine, calling him a beady-eyed Scot and his boycott efforts, quote, pious whinings, unquote. Dennis Jenkinson was pretty clinical about racing drivers, and to him, only the highest degree of performance would do. He's the guy who first characterized driving effort and skill in terms of tenths, such as if you were a 10 tenths driver, putting it at the razor's edge like Sterling Moss, then you were worthy of his attention. Any less, and Jenkinson was bored. Now, as revered as he has become among motorsport riders, I have to mention that Jenkinson's mocking of Jackie Stewart is pretty ironic, considering he was a conscientious objector during the Second World War and he sat out the fight while his peers went toe-to-toe with the Axis powers. 
And Jenkinson was never a driver. Frankly, he was a passenger with a pen. And yet, he still had the gall to ridicule Jackie Stewart, who saw 57 of his friends die on the track in his Formula One career. Among them, John Taylor at the Nuremberg Ring in 1966, Lorenzo Bandini at Monaco, 1967, Bob Anderson at Silverstone, 1967, Joe Schlesser, Rouen, 1968, Gerhard Mitter, Nürburgring, 1969, Martin Brain, Silverstone, 1970, Piers Courage, Zandvoort, 1970, Jochen Rint, Monza, 1970, Joe Siffert, Brands Hatch, 1971. Now, some of these crashes weren't survivable, but many of them would have been if they'd had better barrier construction, better restraint systems, and fire prevention and suppression measures. Anyway, Jackie had run headlong into a storm of criticism, but he didn't give in to the pressure. He'd faced much worse in his own scrapes on the track and in seeing his friends die, and he had many allies, of course, his fellow drivers, but also men like Lou Stanley, the manager of the BRM team, who created the Grand Prix Medical Unit in 1967, and he spearheaded scientific crash analysis that resulted in substantive changes to car and track design. Graham Hill was another staunch safety advocate, and he supported Jackie. Hill also paid for an independent investigation to determine the cause of Jim Clark's fatal crash. And there was Dr. Michael Henderson, an Australian physician and racing driver who'd studied the safety problem, analyzed it, and in 1967 wrote a book called Motor Racing and Safety. Dr. Henderson's work inspired the Ferrari Sigma, which was a concept F1 car developed in cooperation with Pininfarina, Fiat, and Mercedes-Benz in 1969. That same year, an FIA subcommittee issued a publication entitled Considerations on Circuit Design and Safety in Motorsport, in which it made comprehensive recommendations on a long list of improvements but it would still take years for full adoption of their findings and recommendations. Meanwhile, the United States was also coming to grips with safety concerns. There had been plenty of fatalities in NASCAR and IndyCar, although in some cases American racing was ahead of the Europeans. For example, one big innovation was the fuel cell, developed by Firestone and the Scott Paper Company. They came up with a fuel tank that was filled with an open-cell polyurethane foam. The foam was impervious to gasoline, and it created a full-volume baffle inside the tank, preventing fuel slosh, and if the tank was ruptured or punctured, fuel would not spray out uncontrollably. The foam also suppressed the release of vapors which could ignite. Fuel cells of this type were mandatory in championship cars beginning in 1965, and in the following year, NASCAR followed suit. The technology helped to prevent a catastrophic fire after a massive pileup at the 1966 Indy 500. The FIA rules for F1 required fuel bladders beginning in 1970, as well as onboard fire suppression and breathing tubes for the drivers. But inexplicably, safety foam inside the fuel bladder was optional, not mandatory. And four more drivers died under fire conditions in the next several years. Joe Siffert, who I mentioned earlier and then Roger Williamson, Peter Rebson, and Ronnie Peterson. And Nicky Lauda nearly burned to death at the Nuremberg Ring in 1976. In 1971, Jackie Stewart again became world champion, and he was the subject of a documentary film produced by Roman Polanski entitled Weekend of a Champion about his victory at Monaco. 
1972, Stewart was elected president of the Grand Prix Drivers Association, and he called for all sorts of improvements, from runoff areas alongside the track to better construction of the cars. He was also now the senior driver of the Tyrrell team, and he claimed his third and final world champion title in 1973. But it was during that season that he began to consider retirement. His young teammate, Francois Severe, showed talent that nearly equaled his. But on October 6th, Severe was killed in a Saturday qualifying for the United States Grand Prix at Watkins Glen. Jackie was heartbroken, and Severe's death sealed his decision to retire from racing. But he remained president of the Drivers Association, and his safety work continued as well. By the 1980s, technology, attitudes, and the FIA rulebook had changed, and all for the better. A revolutionary new material, carbon fiber, was instrumental in transforming the cockpit into a safety capsule. Fire was far less likely, and full-face helmets had finally been accepted as the standard. In the last 25 years, fatalities in Formula One and professional motorsport in general have become far less common. And yet, new safety rules still face resistance and controversy. In 2003, Formula One mandated the use of the Hans device, or head and neck support, which is that carbon fiber yoke you see that fits over driver's shoulders and straps to the side of the helmet, preventing severe whiplash force. And it's held down by their safety harness so that it can't move around on their shoulders. Prior to the adoption of the Hans device, which, by the way, was invented by a biomechanical engineer named Dr. Robert Hubbard at Michigan State University, drivers were killed by basilar skull fracture. And a fracture at the base of your skull is nearly always fatal. Anyway, this was a device that some NASCAR drivers hated, most ironically, Dale Earnhardt, arguing that it was too restrictive in turning his head from side to side. In fact, he called it a noose. Earnhardt was killed on the final lap of the Daytona 500 in 2001, and the cause of death was basilar skull fracture. By the way, the Hans later got one simple modification, which was that the strap was redesigned to pass freely through a slot on the back of the yoke, allowing much better side-to-side range of motion, while still preventing whiplash. And the Hans is in wide use in motorsport everywhere now, even off-road racing. And here's another innovation. Formula One in 2016 began using the Halo device, which is a three-point titanium protective bar around the cockpit, and it's intended to protect the driver's head, naturally, in the event of a rollover, as well as things like a tire strike or an underride of a crash barrier. Nicky Lauda criticized the Halo for diluting the purity of F1 cars. Which, again, is another irony considering he was nearly killed in the bad old days of F1. And Lewis Hamilton called it ugly. But it's already saved four lives. Tadasuki Makino in a 2018 Formula 2 race in Spain. Charles Leclerc at the Belgian Grand Prix in 2018. Alex Peroni at Monza in 2019. And Romain Grosjean in Bahrain last year. And had it existed at the time, it might have saved Ayrton Senna's life at Imola in 1994. And all of these changes had to start somewhere. And it wasn't the work of any one man. But if you had to pick someone that carried the torch, it was Jackie Stewart. 
Jackie Stewart will be 82 this year, and he's been married to his wife Helen for 54 years. But Helen is now suffering from dementia. She supported him through thick and thin, staying by his side on the razor's edge when he was putting his life on the line. So Jackie has established a charity called Race Against Dementia to help fund global research that will hopefully contribute to new therapies and treatments for dementia patients. If you want to be a part of this effort, you can donate at raceagainstdementia.com or follow their Instagram page at Racing Dementia to learn more. Although Jackie left racing nearly 50 years ago, he's remained a living symbol of safety improvements. He's still outspoken about the topic, and he's one of the most enthusiastic ambassadors of motorsport. On the grounds of his country estate in Buckinghamshire, there are scores of wooden garden benches. Each one is engraved with the name of a fallen friend. Jim Clark, Jochen Rint, Francois Saver. They're all there. And they all live on in the mind of Jackie Stewart and in the hearts of race fans everywhere. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, follow the podcast, leave me a five-star review, and tell your friends about it. You can find me on Instagram at Horsepower Heritage, and if you want to get in touch, drop me a line at horsepowerheritage.com. Just use the contact button on the webpage. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.